Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stonecatchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and whether you're joining through YouTube or the podcast, I'm glad you're here. If you're on YouTube, you'll see that we're a little more informal today. During my usual recording time this weekend, I was busy having adventures with family. So I realize this podcast or video is a little bit late, but I really wanted to get it out there because once again, this block of scripture has some incredible teachings and parables from Jesus Christ, some that I certainly don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about. The chapters that we're discussing this week under the Come Follow Me curriculum are Luke chapters 12 through 17 and John chapter 11. We're going to spend most of our time in Luke chapters 14 through 17. We'll of course touch on John 11 a little bit as well. There's a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. In Luke chapter 14, there are a couple of parables that I think sometimes we skip over a little too quickly. The first one is found in chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. It's a very short parable, but an important one. And actually, before we start reading this parable, I should mention that this is coming on the heels of, at the end of Luke chapter 13, which we actually covered in a previous week, the teaching in verse 30 of, And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. We talked about that particular verse in a little more detail in a previous podcast. But this next parable we're going to read really relates to this principle. So let's get back to the parable in Luke chapter 14, verse 7. It says, And Jesus put forth a parable to those who were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a man lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And him that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and now begin with shame to take the lowest place. So the KGV is a little bit hard to read here, but essentially what it's saying, when you go to a wedding, don't automatically take the highest room or the highest position. If you do that, you may be embarrassed later when the person in charge comes to you and says, actually, you're going to need to move down so that this other person can take the highest place. In verse 10, he tells us what we should actually do. He says, but when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. That's the end of the parable. And then here's the short lesson that is very consistent with that verse from chapter 13. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, as with all of Jesus' parables, of course, this one is not about which room to sit in when you go to a wedding. This is about how we approach the kingdom of God. The lesson that I see in these few short verses is that we should not assume that because of something we have done or something specific about us, that we have some sort of higher place within the kingdom of God or some sort of special relationship with our heavenly parents. We should never exalt ourselves because of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And I'll just say, I think that this is something that happens in our church far too often. I think we need to be very careful that we don't take a position either knowingly or unknowingly that because we have received certain things, maybe certain ordinances or made certain covenants, that we have some sort of special position or special relationship with our heavenly parents. Now, those covenants and ordinances can absolutely bless our lives, but only because they serve as reminders 
of what we are here in this life to do, and that is to love God, which we do by loving our neighbors. We are here to take care of our fellow children of heavenly parents. That's why we're here, and those ordinances and covenants that we may or may not have entered into are only there to remind us that we are all divine and that our responsibility here is to take care of one another. Those ordinances and covenants or anything else in our lives should never result in us feeling like we have some sort of a special position within the kingdom of God or some sort of special relationship with our heavenly parents. That's just not true. And this parable right here teaches us that if we do think that, we are going to have a rude awakening at some future day when we realize that because we have exalted ourselves, we will be abased. And those who we may have looked at as being lower or not having that same special relationship or position will actually be exalted. Now, I think it goes without saying that our heavenly parents view us all the same. They are no respecter of persons. And so they don't actually rank people from best to worst and then flip it around. I think this is a lesson for us that's taught in a way that we can comprehend. We are the ones that work within hierarchies and rank people from best to worst. The only way that they can get us to realize that we just need to, that we just need to totally abandon that way of thinking is by telling us that it will be flipped around. If we create a hierarchy, our heavenly parents will just flip it on its head. The last will be first and the first will be last. All right, that's enough about that short parable. Let's go to the next one. And this one is even shorter, but I love it because it gives us a very easy to understand definition of justice that goes a little bit against what we might think God's justice actually is. Starting in verse 12, it says, Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. So, when you're making a dinner or a supper, don't call, don't ask people to join you that can repay you by asking you to join them at a later dinner or supper that they put on. Instead, in verse 13, Jesus teaches, But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Think about this. In order to participate in what Jesus is calling the resurrection of the just or to be considered just, he's telling us that our gifts, our love, our mercy, whatever we have to give, should go to those who have no ability to repay us, rather than going to those who can absolutely repay us and even repay us maybe more than we've done for them. That is what is considered justice. Our idea of justice is usually giving somebody what they deserve. In the world of punishments, you want the punishment to be equal to the crime or whatever act was committed, giving somebody what they deserve based on what they've done. Here, Jesus is telling us that in order to be just, we need to give something to somebody that they can in no way repay. That's not how we usually think of justice. We would likely consider justice to be the first scenario in that we invite somebody to our house for a great feast or supper, and then they invite us to their house for a great feast or supper. That sounds like the way we typically conceive of justice, and probably how we've really conceived of 
our Heavenly Parents and Jesus Christ's definition of justice. We view justice as an opposite to mercy. But this parable right here is teaching us that that's not the case. This brand of justice, this divine justice, sounds a lot more like mercy. And that's because I think our Heavenly Parents realize that given the circumstances that we are in, and the fact that we could never repay them for the grace and mercy that is extended towards us, the only just action is for them to extend that grace and mercy equally to everybody. That is justice. To them, I think justice and mercy are one in the same. And I love that teaching from that short three-verse parable. All right, let's get to the next parable, which is the parable of the Great Supper. So one of these people that heard these parables um, talks to Jesus in the next verse and says, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus responds with another parable. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. The person who made the supper sends his servant out to tell those who had already been invited to come because everything was ready. You may be familiar with this parable. What happens next is all those people who are supposed to come give excuses for why they can't. One says that they have a piece of land that they need to go look at. Another says that they have five yoke of oxen they want to go test out. And the other one says that they can't make it because they just got married. So the servant comes and tells the master that these were the responses he received when he bade people to come into the supper. The master tells the servant, go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. The servant did this. The house still was not full. So in verse 22, excuse me, verse 23, the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. They were invited, but now the house is going to be so full that there is no room for them. Now, when I think about the supper that the master or Jesus Christ would be preparing for us, there's a few different things that come to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life and that he is the living water. Another that comes to mind is the manna that the children of Israel ate as they were wandering through the wilderness. This was essentially a free gift from heaven that they didn't have to do anything except go and gather up, but only enough for one day or two days if it was the day before the Sabbath. The third thing that I think of is Lehi's vision or Nephi's dream about Lehi's vision that includes the tree of life. And if you remember, the fruit of the tree that Lehi and some members of his family tasted in that vision was referred to as the love of God that sheddeth itself abroad. Thinking of these three different ideas really informs my idea of what this feast is. This isn't just any ordinary dinner. This is a feast of the abundant gift of our heavenly parents' grace made available through the healer, Jesus Christ. The feast is our heavenly parents' love and our heavenly parents want everybody to partake of that. Unfortunately, there will be some that think that there are things that they need to do that are more important than just sitting down and feasting with those who are different from them, those who are from the highways and the hedges, those who are maimed and halt and blind, 
sitting next to them and feasting upon this grace, this mercy, this love. But nothing is more important. This gift, this feast is for everyone and anyone who is willing to go in and feast with their fellow siblings of our heavenly parents will be able to partake. If we think about the previous parable, let's not think that there's something we need to do to repay this feast. We can't, we, we literally cannot do that. We're told several times in scriptures that no matter what, we'll end up being unprofitable servants. And that shouldn't make us feel bad or guilty or shame or anything like that. What it means is our focus should not be trying to repay this beautiful and infinite gift of grace and mercy. Instead, it should be ensuring that all of those around us are aware of just how infinite and how freely this gift is given. Our duty is not to repay this gift, but instead to pay forward this gift. That is what we should be doing as disciples of Jesus Christ. Next, Jesus Christ teaches something that I think sometimes is misused to tell others that they are not doing enough within the church or within their discipleship or within their calling or something like that. In verse 25, he says, And there were great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we have to know that the purpose of this teaching is not that we should hate members of our family or that Jesus is here literally to make sure that we do. I do think that he is telling us that what is most important is taking up our cross and that we shouldn't let anything get in the way of that. Now, hold on a second. I want to come back to that idea in a minute. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to take up our cross. If we think about what brought about Jesus's cross, and I think we've talked about this in maybe one or two other episodes, he was crucified for including people that society and the church had left out for breaking norms and laws to provide healing and love to those that society and the church didn't think were deserving of love or healing, or at least that it should wait until some other day. His cross came because he gathered those who had been rejected and downtrodden. His cross came because he taught that we should love our enemies and that we should include everyone. I believe that what he's teaching in places where he tells us we need to take up our own cross, that that cross should come for the same reasons. What it means to take up our cross is to take up the cause of those who are afflicted or downtrodden or cast aside by the church or society. Our crosses are not found in the safety of those who are just like us and have everything that they need already. Our crosses are found when we leave the 90 and 9 and find the one who has been left behind by the church or society or their family. Our crosses come as we, as Jesus did, find those who need healing that have been overlooked by the church. That is how our cross comes. He goes on and says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? So essentially he's saying we need to count the cost before we start on this path of discipleship. 
Unfortunately, I think sometimes these verses are used to accuse others, as I said, of not doing enough in the kingdom of God or in their calling or push people to do more than they're able to do. As I was thinking about this, I remembered some beautiful quotes from Chieko Okazaki, a previous General Relief Society president for our church, and I just wanted to share some of those. Here's the first one. Only you know your circumstances, your energy level, the needs of your children, and the emotional demands of other obligations. Be wise during intensive seasons of your life. Cherish your agency and don't give it away casually. Don't compare yourself to others. Nearly always this will make you despondent. Don't accept somebody else's interpretation of how you should be spending your time. Make the best decision you can and then evaluate it to see how it works. Here's another wonderful and short quote. If you're doing the best you can, that's good enough. And then she also said, be spiritually independent enough that your relationship with the Savior doesn't depend on your circumstances or on what other people say and do. Have the spiritual independence to be a Mormon, the best Mormon you can, in your own way. Not the bishop's way, not the Relief Society president's way, your way. End of quote. Those three different quotes from Chieko Okazaki are beautiful reminders of how we need to approach all things in wisdom and order. I think, unfortunately, our approach that we need to be willing to give up everything for the kingdom of God, which is true, can lead us to judge others who we don't see, who we don't think are doing that. But we don't know their circumstances, and we don't know everything that they're doing in their life to contribute to the kingdom of God. So what we need to do is take these scriptures and then do the best we can and never judge anybody else's efforts for what they are doing. We can't look at them and say, well, you should be willing to give this up or give that up or start doing this or stop doing this. That's not our job. Our job is to love people and let them know that they are loved by their heavenly parents and by us. They will know their best path forward as they strive to take up their cross and be disciples of Jesus Christ. We'll all do it in slightly different ways. And I think that's the design, because if we all did it the exact same way, a lot of people would end up not being ministered to. So if you hear these scriptures used in a way that make you or others feel like you're not doing enough, you can sit with that thought, but remember, nobody knows if you are except for you. And if you are, be confident and comfortable in that as you build your personal relationship with your heavenly parents. All right, we have to get to chapter 15 because there are some excellent parables here. This chapter contains one of my all-time favorite stories. I know you're already tired of me saying that, but this is where we find the parable of the prodigal son. Before we get to that one, there are two other short ones that we need to talk about first. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. Again, where Jesus talks about leaving the 99 to go and find the one. My four favorite words of this parable are at the end of verse 4. I'll read the entire verse, and then you'll catch the last four words. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? I love that. Because it tells us the efforts that the healer Jesus Christ will go through to ensure that we are found. 
no matter who has left us behind or how they have left us behind, he will search until he finds us. And when he does, it says that he will lay us on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he gets home, he will call together friends and neighbors and say to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found that which was lost. And the next is the parable of the lost coin. And those same four words are in it. In this parable, it says a woman had ten pieces of silver and then she lost one piece. What will she do? Of course, she'll light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. There will be no stop in the search until it is complete. And then it's a very similar story. When she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors and she rejoices and asks them to rejoice with her because she has found that which was lost. Jesus Christ will absolutely never give up on us. He will search until he finds us. Just another way in which his grace, his mercy, his love is infinite. He will search until he finds us. And after those two short parables comes the big one, the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. You're likely familiar with the story, so I'm not going to read it all, and it is pretty long. But as a quick reminder, there was a man who had two sons. One of them came to him and essentially asked for his half of the inheritance ahead of time, and he left home. It tells us in verse 13 that he wasted his substance with riotous living. Doesn't give us a lot of details, but that doesn't sound very good. He ends up really hitting rock bottom when he's working for somebody and his job is to feed the pigs. He comes to a realization that how many of his father's hired servants have enough to have enough to eat, and yet he is out here perishing with hunger. So this is what he resolves to do. In verses 18 and 19, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. This is what he decides to do. So he makes his way towards home, and then it tells us in verse 20, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What a beautiful moment in this parable. This young man had been gone from home for a long time, and yet his father saw him coming towards home when he was yet a far way off. This tells us that his father had not forgotten about his son. In fact, his father was probably sitting somewhere watching and waiting for his son to come home. Somehow he knew that his son would come home. And when that moment occurred, his father was ready. Not with words of condemnation or judgment or what have you done with what I gave you, but instead with compassion and a hug and a kiss. The young man starts to do what he had resolved to do in verse 21. It says, He said unto his father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Remember after that, he was going to tell his father to make him one of his servants. But it sounds like in the story that his father interrupted him mid-sentence and says, Bring forth the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. I love those three items that the father gave to the son. His best robe, a ring, and shoes. Or other translations say sandals. A robe signifies that this is an important celebratory event. A best robe was really only reserved for a few occasions in an entire year, or maybe even less common than that. His father said, give him my best robe. And then he gives him a ring. A ring signifies authority. And then he gives him something that may not seem like much to us, shoes. But in those days, servants were not given shoes. This is a very symbolic thing that the father is giving to this son. He's telling him with this gift of shoes, you are not a servant. You are my son. Don't tell me you're not worthy to be my son. I won't hear anything of it. You are my son. And this is where we catch up with the elder son. In verse 25, it tells us that he was in the field and came and drew nigh to the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants out, apparently not wanting to go in, and asks him what was going on. The servant tells him, thy brother that was lost is found. He's home. We're having a party to celebrate. And verse 28 just crushes me. And he was angry and would not go in. But once again, the father, in this different circumstance, leaves the house to come out and find his elder son as well. In verse 29, we read that the elder son is not happy with the situation. He stayed home. He didn't transgress any commandments. He never received a kid or a fatted calf that he could make merry with his friends. It said there was never a party thrown for him. But as soon as my younger brother came home, after it says, devouring thy living with harlots, thou hast killed the fatted calf. He says, don't you know what my younger brother, your youngest son, has done? He has done terrible and unspeakable things. He has broken the law. And yet, as soon as he comes home, you throw a party for him? I've been here all along. Where's my party? I think sometimes we can be a little bit too hard on this elder son. We are, of course, all the prodigal son. But I think in many ways, we're also all this elder son. Sometimes we think that our heavenly parents' grace and mercy should not or cannot be extended to certain people because of things that they've done or even things that they are. And nothing could be further from the truth. When we take those types of positions or have those kinds of thoughts, we are being this eldest son through and through. We're telling ourselves, this person isn't deserving of love or grace or mercy or a spot in heaven because of something that they have done. Or even worse, because of something that they are. We become angry and we refuse to go in. If this party, if this merriment, if this gathering and rejoicing is symbolic of heaven, think about what this means for the elder son. If he's so angry about grace and mercy being extended to somebody who he views as less worthy than himself, if he's so angry that he will not go in, 
I think there's a lesson for us about what might happen when it comes to entering into God's presence after this life. Are we going to pass to the other side, get a look inside heaven and see people who have done things or have been things in this life that we don't think deserve to be in the presence of God? And are we going to see them and be so angry that we will not go in? This goes back to the Savior's teachings that Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You may have heard sometimes when the plan of salvation is discussed that there are different kingdoms or degrees of glory so that everybody will have a place where they are comfortable. That if we haven't learned how to abide a celestial law in this life, then we won't be comfortable in the presence of God. And so we actually won't even want to be there. And I think sometimes that's interpreted or intended to mean that If we haven't learned to follow every rule and commandment perfectly, then we'll be too ashamed to be in the presence of God. We won't be comfortable there. But I actually wonder if the idea we should be getting at there is if we haven't learned to extend grace and mercy to all, then when we see that that is what our heavenly parents are doing and the type of people that they have extended grace and mercy to and who are living in their presence, Are we going to see that and not be comfortable in their presence? Are we going to be like the elder brother and be angry and refuse to go in? The parable ends and we don't know whether the elder brother goes in, which tells me that that's the question for us. That's not to mean that we can say like the elder brother, we have never transgressed a commandment and we have always stayed by our heavenly parents' side because None of us have done that. Surely the elder brother hasn't even done that. He only thinks that he has. So while each of us are the prodigal son, what we really need to think about and root out of our lives and our hearts are the ways in which we are the eldest brother. That's the open question at the end of the parable. Okay, let's jump to Luke chapter 17. We're going to skip right over Luke chapter 16 because I really want to talk about the 10 lepers, because I feel like it once again, in a subtle way, continues this theme of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So you'll remember that there were 10 lepers. They come to Jesus and ask to be healed. Their specific words are, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Surely they've heard about the miracles and the healings that Jesus has performed including other lepers that he has healed. It tells us in verse 14 what he says back to them. Go shoe yourselves unto the priests. That's all that it says that he said, which was probably a little bit confusing to the 10 lepers. They were probably expecting him to come to them, maybe touch him with his hands because that's how he had performed previous healings. They probably weren't expecting instructions to go and show themselves to the priests. That probably actually sounded totally crazy to them because if they went and showed themselves to somebody while they were unclean, they would once again be cast out. That's not what they want. But apparently they listened because the next thing that it says still in verse 14 is, and it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So they trusted in what Jesus told them to do, even though it wasn't quite what they were expecting. And as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15 tells us, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back 
and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. I have no doubt that all ten of the lepers were incredibly grateful for the healing that they received. But the one among them that expressed that gratitude to Jesus Christ was a Samaritan. That must have stung a little bit to Jesus's, no doubt, mostly Jewish audience. In verse 17, it tells us that Jesus said unto them, or said unto him, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. It's good to remind ourselves right now that Samaritans were individuals who were unable to make covenants, in a sense, in those days, because they were not allowed in the temple. And in fact, the temple that they had built in their land had been destroyed. And yet, the Samaritan was the only individual within the group that turned back to give thanks to Jesus for the healing they had received. Just a quick note about Matthew, excuse me, just a quick note about Luke chapter 17, verse 21, because I cannot just blow right past this verse. This is where Jesus Christ tells us, the kingdom of God is within you. That comes in response to, in verse 20, the Pharisees asking, when is the kingdom of God coming? He tells them, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here, or lo there, or, you know, look at this, look at that. The kingdom of God isn't going to come by looking for certain things that are happening. He tells them, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. What I take from that is each of us has within ourselves the ability to bring about a piece of the kingdom of God. Each of us within ourselves has the ability to establish a small piece of Zion. We do that as we extend love and mercy and grace to everybody around us, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of what we think they have done. And as we read in previous parables we talked about today, regardless of their ability to repay us. The kingdom of God is found within us because each of us have the ability to do that for those around us. And if we could get everybody to do that same thing, the kingdom of God would literally be established on earth overnight because there would be no poor among us. We would have all things in common and the kingdom of God would literally be here. So each of us has a piece of the kingdom of God within us. And as we extend that to others, that is what will bring about the establishment of his kingdom. Not watching for things happening outside of ourselves, but in taking specific actions to establish that kingdom within our sphere of influence. All right, let's jump really quick to John chapter 11, because again, this is a story that we cannot just skip over. The raising of Lazarus. Now, this is, of course, an incredible miracle, a beautiful miracle. But if we read a little bit more in John chapter 11, we realize that the circumstances of the raising of Lazarus make it even more powerful. You'll remember that Mary and Martha, who are the sisters to Lazarus, sent somebody to tell Jesus, Behold, and this is in verse 3, He whom thou lovest is sick. In verse 4, it tells us when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. He knew what was going to happen. 
he waits two days in, in verse 6, and then in verse 7, he tells his disciples, let us go into Judea again. But his disciples told him, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? They say, Jesus, we cannot go to Judea. The people there want to kill you. We are not going. We're not risking that. It's not worth it. And I think that's a part of the story that we often forget. As I said, yes, it's a beautiful miracle, but Jesus, by going there, was putting himself in personal danger. Now, as the Son of God, he would have known that that wasn't his time, but it's a perfect example to us that we need to be willing to go into places where we may face personal danger in order to provide hope and healing to other people. His disciples didn't know that they were going to be able to leave unscathed, but they still went with him. He tells them in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him. His disciples say, oh, okay, well, that's great. If he's just sleeping, that's easy. They didn't understand. Jesus tells them very clearly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And Thomas, who sometimes gets a bad rap for what happens after the resurrection, says in this instance, let us go that we may die with him. Thomas knows that this is what they need to do. He's not afraid, or at least he's not letting the fear of what might happen when they go stop him from going. We know that as Jesus approaches, Martha comes to him and tells him what has happened. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, Whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha responds, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus makes it clear to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She says, Yea, Lord. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. When we pick up in verse 32, it tells us that when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. The same thing that Martha said. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And then in verse 35, such a powerful short verse it tells us jesus wept he undoubtedly knew what was going to happen and yet he wept with her i'm also struck that although martha and mary's words were the same to begin with if thou hadst been here my brother had not died martha followed that up with an expression of faith saying but i know even now whatever you ask for god will give it thee Mary didn't say that. Some might say that she didn't express faith that she should have. And yet, even in that circumstance, it says that Jesus wept with her. And even in that circumstance, that did not prevent him from performing this miraculous healing, this raising from the dead. We read in verse 39 that, Jesus tells them to take away the stone, and they tell him, we really shouldn't do that. It has been four days he has started to stink. Decomposition has already started to happen. It's too late. This cannot 
be done. We shouldn't roll the stone away. Jesus said to her, Said I not unto thee, if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? And I think that was all the reminder that they needed because then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said to Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. He then commands in, for, in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. And then we read in verse 44, he that was dead came forth. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days. And while that is absolutely incredible, that's not the strongest part of this story to me. The strongest parts are, one, that Jesus and his disciples, specifically Thomas, were willing to go somewhere where they were in personal danger in order to minister to Mary and Martha in this powerful way. And two, that although Jesus knew what would happen, he knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead, he still took that time to weep with Mary. How often are we so quick when somebody else is weeping or grieving or saddened to tell them that everything will be okay, that they just need to try a little harder or look at the bright side, that everything is going to be okay? We really need to not do that. What we need to do is be with people and be willing to weep with them. In fact, that's what we have covenanted to do when we're baptized. We have covenanted to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And it is as we keep that covenant that the kingdom of God that is within each of us, as we talked about previously, starts to spread to those around us. Thank you so much for joining Latter-day Stonecatchers again this week. Remember, your heavenly parents love you. I love you. Catch stones. Don't throw them. We'll see you next week. If you're listening on the podcast and haven't had a chance to leave a rating and a review, I would truly appreciate if you would do so. Seeing sincere reviews in Apple Podcasts and other platforms makes a really big difference in helping others know that they can trust the Latter-day Stonecatchers podcast as part of their Come Follow Me study. So if you're finding these episodes useful, please leave a review and also feel free to share with your family and friends. Thanks again for listening.